Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk about the pandemic that never was, but the one that really is. We don't have a pandemic of SARS-CoV-2, this infection running around rampant, but we have a pandemic of metabolic inflexibility, insulin resistance that makes certain populations highly more susceptible to this. And to discuss this in greater detail, we have we are honored to have Dr. Asim Malhotra, who is a cardiologist from the UK. He's written a new book called The 21 Day Immunity Plan that's gonna go into all the specifics. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Nice to see you, Joseph. All right, so you had a few motivations to write this book. Obviously you're in the UK. So uh, you've got uh, Boris Johnson, your uh, prime minister over there who, uh, was metabolically inflexible because he was overweight. It's one of the symptoms and wound up uh, having to go into the hospital as a result. But then you also had a personal challenge with your mother developing a spinal infection, largely as a result of lifestyle habits that she pursued uh, that caused her to die away, die and pass away prematurely at the age of 68. So my sincere condolences to you uh, for that. I know how painful that can be. My mother passed away a few years ago now too. She was a little older at uh, 82, but, and it's interesting, there's a little slight little tangent I wanted to address that she was a lifetime smoker. So she had COPD and, uh, but she weighed pretty decent. I mean, she wasn't uh, obsessive about it, but she avoided most of the switches. She wasn't really that. And I know it's, it's, a, it's an end of two, but it's interesting how if, how how really your lifestyle choices with respect to the food you eat is far more important than even smoking it, from my perspective. I think it is. It's, and we're going to go into the details, especially as it relates to this pandemic. So why don't you expand on those and we'll go into more, more specifics of the book. Because really, let me, let me finally comment on the, the book. It's a short read. I read it in one walk on the beach. And I love that. But it was really brilliant. And it summarizes, condenses, it just highlights the important things. So and reinforces things we've heard about, but maybe are a little bit confused on. So congratulations on writing a brilliant book. Joseph, thank you for that. I appreciate it a, a lot. Um, so, I mean, let, talk about the first point in terms of my motivation for writing. I think you've hit the nail on the head. The real pandemic is um, poor metabolic health, or as you say, metabolic inflexibility, which we'll go into detail on. Um, but just a bit of background in terms of the book. So um, I think the first thing to say is I had become aware, you know, as early on as sort of March when we were getting data from China and from Italy, that there was a clear link between, you know, conditions essentially related to excess body fat in very simple terms, um, defined, you know, as poor metabolic health, had very strong associations with worse outcomes from COVID-19. So we're talking about conditions like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and of course, obesity, and that data kept emerging. And it was very clear, that link was so clear, and it wasn't just out of the blue, Joseph, because... You know, historically, certainly as a uh, as a medic, as somebody who's you know been a practicing doctor for almost two decades now, it's um, you know very clear. We know that people who have poor metabolic health certainly tend to have worse outcomes from really any infection, um, and that's kind of something we've been aware of. But you know, the COVID nineteen I think has highlighted it more and made us think about it more. And we're talking about you know chest infections, hospital admissions with pneumonia, for example, type two diabetics tend to do a lot worse. So I was um, looking at that data and then I thought, well, listen, there's something missing about, out of this mainstream conversation. You know, it was getting a lot of media coverage across the world in the UK, in the United States, but no one was talking about lifestyle. And more to the point, the fact that these conditions, these lifestyle risk factors can be, as you know, rapidly ameliorated or modified um, just purely by changing diet. And I thought, well, actually, you know, there's one message missing in addition to all the other things that have been going on through the, 
you know, through the government messaging around social distancing and hand washing and all of that kind of stuff, they should have been saying, listen, this is the time now. There's no better time for you to really think about trying to improve your health and looking about looking into what you eat, you know, um, moderate exercise, sleep, all those things. But it wasn't happening. So I started writing um, initially a number of articles in some of the, the British newspapers. Um, and then I got an opportunity to go on Sky News um, to speak about it there. And I made it very clear. And I said, listen, there's a chance at some point we're all going to get this virus, you know, um, and, uh, and we want to make sure that we're in the best position to be able to deal with it so that we don't get sick from it when it happens. And uh, that was my first sort of um, sort of public. I think I was probably, you know, maybe the only doctor that had the opportunity to say that in the mainstream media, probably in the world at that time. I think no one else had said it. Um, so that's how things started. But then what happened as, as uh, you know, the more and more data became available and, and as the, the UK got hit, you know, quite hard, um, up to over a thousand deaths a day at one stage, then the prime minister got um, admitted, uh, Boris Johnson, and he, you know, looking at him, people know he's always had issues with his weight. And it's interesting that he seemed to be the only person that got particularly sick, whereas his colleagues of similar age, you know, who were slimmer, seemed to be able to deal with it at home and, and weren't particularly unwell. So then uh, I wrote another article in the Telegraph newspaper, which was featured on the front page. And I was on Good Morning Britain over here. And I mentioned it again. I mentioned Boris. And that seemed to suddenly cause a huge media storm in terms of, you know, the, you know, cardiologists, you know, links Boris's weight with his sickness. He was already, he'd already come out of hospital. He'd recovered, thankfully, by then. Um, and then uh, my publisher contacted me and said, to seem, listen, you've been very vocal on this particular issue. You know, can you get, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd written also in European Scientist an article about this, which got, you know, went viral and broke their record and had whatever, 250,000 views or whatever, saying the elephant in the room is, you know, um, is, is obesity and metabolic health, really, this is what we should be discussing. And, uh, and she said, listen, can we, can you get this written in six weeks, you know? Uh, which, as you know, Joseph, is not uh, that easy a task to do. But I think because I had a lot of I've been reading so much research on it and I thought this is such an important you know, issue for public health. Um, interestingly, Joseph, at this, around the same time, um, the Secretary of State for Health in the UK, Matt Hancock, actually contacted me and asked me to advise him on what they should be doing. And I said, listen, obesity is one component of a much of a bigger issue. You know, it's the I would say the tip of the diet related disease iceberg. We need to be talking about metabolic health. And uh, I sent him some data and information and he took it on board. And then it was, you know, uh, about a couple of months later on, you know, six weeks later, by the time I'd finished the book, um, Boris Johnson, our prime minister came out saying, actually, we need to do something. He'd linked it and said, we need to do something about the obesity epidemic. Um, and yeah, so I got the book written, you know, it was a lot of waking up early in the morning at 4.30 and, and doing a lot of writing. And, um, but you know, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. I really appreciate that. I tried to make something quite concise, um, but you know, with enough strong messages for everybody to kind of pay attention, not just members of the public and people who are concerned themselves, but actually about what can we do on a policy level, Joseph? Because you know, this problem of poor metabolic health, of obesity, excess body fat, has been uh, rampaging through the populations of the Western world, now even in, in, in developing countries, you know, for the last two decades. And we've not really made any impact. And the reason we've not made any impact isn't just about the lack of knowledge or how should I say misinformation or poor education, but it's about, you know, policies at government level that are in, implemented to protect the public from what are basically the lies and misinformation that comes from the food industry. And uh, unless we deal with that, we're not really going to have the impact that we need to have across the whole population. Yeah, that's certainly a good strategy uh, to employ. But the beautiful thing about this is that we don't need any governmental policies to personally implement these strategies for ourselves, our families, and our loved ones. The information is there. It's well-documented. It's non-controversial, simple. And in most cases, it's basically cost you nothing to implement other than your time. So that's the good news is that you, we don't have to wait for governmental policy, but I couldn't agree more. It would be nice if that aligned with uh, establishing these initiatives within the general population, because that would go a long way towards reducing it. So I'm wonder, I'm curious, um, 
because your messaging is in direct conflict with the mainstream narrative of anything that conflicts with the World Health Organization uh, message needs to be battered down and suppressed and, and, uh, and labeled as fake news. So I'm wondering what the response was to your message in, in uh, England. Actually, it was, it was largely quite positive, um, Joseph, in the sense that, you know, other than the occasional bit of trolling, I mean, you know, the book itself generally got, you know, good reviews. Um, I had some eminent doctors who endorsed it. So I think that in general, I think it's very difficult. I mean, the only, if I was being devil's advocate, people would, uh, against what I'm advising, which is that you can, you know, within 21 days, markedly improve markers of metabolic health. Um, we know that is itself correlated with immune dysfunction. The only thing is, do we have any definitive data to show that if you improve metabolic health, you're then going to show, you know, biomarkers of, 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 you know, related to the immune system or even improving outcomes. We don't have that, but I don't think we need it to be perfectly honest. Um, it's a no brainer from my perspective, but yeah, of course, it'd be great to have some hard data showing that you can, um, you know, that you can significantly enhance, or optimize your immune function. But I think it's very, it's one very difficult to argue against. So I think there hasn't been any backlash in that sense um, so far. Uh, and and I, think, I think that's a good thing. I think the only thing is, as you know, even though the book has done very well here in the UK as a bestseller and all that kind of stuff, you know, you know, we are, the, the public is constantly having to combat this tidal wave, this tsunami of misinformation on a daily basis, whether it's through false advertising or whether it's through wrong dietary advice. And, you know, I, even if I had like one day on the news, even if I hit the front page of a newspaper, unless I had knock on effect and was then reinforced again and again and again on a daily basis, if every day the government was putting out a message saying metabolic health is a key, then we would have really a really big impact. Of course, you know, I like yourself, you know, I have um, feedback from so many people through social media, patients that I've helped, People who comment on my Facebook that have reverse metabolic syndrome have come off medications. But you know, on the larger scale, this is what we're up against, Joseph, really. So it's great. You know, it's good to, to get the ball rolling. And hopefully, for me, that's why influencing the Secretary of State for Health, despite all the conflicts of interest or lobbying that he may have from the food industry, it still goes some way to him thinking, huh, okay, well, actually, maybe there's something in this. How can we try and make sure that we get this message out to the public and keep reinforcing it again and again and again. And, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Joseph, yes, of course, we have, you know, got a role to play. We've got our channels, our social media channels, for example, mainstream media at times to get information out there. Um, but, you know, for, for certain groups, certain populations, Joseph, certainly in the UK, and I suspect it's the same in the US, from the poorer backgrounds who are, who've got job insecurity, low wages, and when you look at the, you know, their affordability of healthy food, it becomes very challenging. Now, it's not impossible, but it's very challenging. And that's where, you know, those are the people who are most vulnerable. And that's why I say, well, like with smoking, you know, we got so far with educating the public about smoking and how bad it was for you. But really, if you look certainly in the United States and then in the UK, it was when you introduced like public smoking bans and banned tobacco advertising, you know, the, and, and even taxation, increasing the price of cigarettes. When those things came in because of government having to intervene, because we can't survive without government. I mean, our laws are dictated by government. We can't have anarchy. We can't live in a lawless society. So who determines those laws? It's the government. But they also have a role and responsibility to protect, again, the public from misleading uh, information, which basically allows the food industry and to some degree the pharmaceutical industry to get away with stuff, um, which is really unacceptable, which is unjust. And, um, and I think that's why, for me, Linking that to smoking, and of course, you know, there are some differences with, uh, with food and, and smoking, of course. Um, I think if we use those principles, then combine it with the education, of course. We have to educate people, absolutely. But with those policies that make it easier people, for people to make the healthier choice, then you're going to see huge impacts very, very quickly. And we're not there yet, unfortunately. No. Um, and that's certainly what, you know, my, my, my analysis, my research... Um, you know, uh, really, yeah, that's the conclusion I've drawn. Okay, so thank you for expanding on that. And I'd like to go back to the central thesis of your book, which is that we have a pandemic of uh, metabolic inflexibility, insulin resistance, or ill health, metabolic ill health. So uh, 
And there's two subsets of that. One is uh, the traditional one that you described, which is uh, insulin resistance described as or defined as high blood pressure, high triglycerides, uh, the need to be on cholesterol lowering medications, uh, obesity. So though, though, and, uh, and other variables that are, that are connected with that. And in the United States, I'm pretty sure it's similar for the UK, we had the NHANES uh, study that was uh, published about four years ago and showed that 88% of the population in the US, 88%, literally one, four, four out of every five people were met those criteria of, met, of not having good metabolic health. But there's another one, which I think you, I, I, and you mentioned in their book too, so I appreciate that, is that you could be described as a subset of metabolic health, which is vitamin D sufficiency. And similarly, we have about the same numbers of people in the population, probably more in the UK, because we have, a, we have many large segments of our population in the United States that are far lower latitude than the UK. And obviously, as a result, can have higher vitamin D levels just by being outside. So we have 90% of the population in the US, I suspect even higher in the UK that are deficient in vitamin D. So just, and the, the beautiful thing about the vitamin D though, is that it doesn't require a lot of willpower or discipline to implement and change your lifestyle. It's just a matter of swallowing a crazy little inexpensive pill in the right dose to, to, to modify that. So I wonder if you can address those, those two and then we can go into some of the more specific details of the- of Yeah, and no, Joseph, you're right. I mean, that is a scary statistic around the metabolic health issue, which I only came up, you know, I only discovered a few months earlier, which was, as you're absolutely right, you know, only one in eight um, adult Americans are metabolically healthy. And this isn't even just older age groups. If you look at, um, you know, uh, people aged between 20 and 40, people you consider quite young, only one in four of those have optimal metabolic health. And to define that, you know, which I do in the book, there are very, there are five variables, five risk factors, if you like, that you need to be aware of, which are not expensive tests to do, you know, um, and, you know, two of them you can actually basically do at home, but it's, you know, increased waist circumference, um, being pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, um, ha you know, having pre-hypertension or hypertension, uh, and having either high tr blood triglycerides or low so-called HDL, good cholesterol. And um, if you have all of those five in the normal range, great, your optimal metabolic health. Um, the worst form of it is metabolic syndrome, which is basically having any three of those five being abnormal. Now, the, the data from COVID, which is interesting, shows that the highest risk of death and hospitalization are in people with metabolic syndrome, not obesity. Obesity probably doubles your risk of death. But with metabolic syndrome, it's around three and a half times increased risk of death, more than threefold, and about five times the risk of hospitalization if you get COVID-19. So that is the major problem. And the reason why that's important, Joseph, is it also affects many, many people. And this is why BMI, to be honest, I think should be thrown out. I mean, it's useless. It's non. It's 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 outdated. We should be looking at um you know a, a, a metabolic health because up to 40% of people with a so-called normal BMI who may be told they've got a healthy weight actually are metabolically unhealthy. And that's a huge proportion of people. And there are disparities depending on which ethnicity you're from. But the, the basic problem with BMI, which is a calculation based upon your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared, is it doesn't take into consideration your body fat percentage, your muscle mass, your ethnicity. So this is the problem with it. And, and it misses a huge group of people who are probably vulnerable um, and, and could institute lifestyle changes to help themselves if they were advised to do so. But a lot of them aren't being advised because they're being told they've got a healthy weight. So, you know, that's also uh, something that I think people should be aware of. And if, we, if, we, if everybody knew their metabolic health markers and were then given the advice to do things about it, then again, as I point out in the book, within a few weeks, you notice probably significant changes. And of course, it's going to vary from person to person. Um, as regards to vitamin D, I think you're, you're, you're right, Joseph. It is, um, again, something that we've ignored for a long time. Certainly in the UK, a significant proportion of people are either deficient or severely deficient in vitamin D. And um, it, it has such an important role in, in immune function. You know, it has many, most receptors, cell receptors in our body have vitamin D receptors. And it is involved in, um, you know, enhancing both innate and adaptive immunity. So, 
you know, the bottom line is you need to have your levels um, certainly well within the normal range. And yes, in, in, in these days, because people don't spend enough time sort of, uh, you know, exposing enough of their body to sunlight, which should be at least 10 minutes a day at noon, probably up to 25 minutes. And if interesting, if you're darker skinned, you need more sunlight to generate the same amount of vitamin D as someone who's lighter skinned. And as you know, certainly blacks in America and South Asians in the UK were disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And some of that would almost certainly be because of vitamin D deficiency. There was a study in Indonesia that showed that people hospitalized with um, COVID-19, those who had severe deficiency versus those who had normal ranges of vitamin D in their blood, there was a tenfold difference in death rates, which is extraordinary. So it certainly has a very important role to play. Now, supplementation, there's some mixed data historically, but in general, it doesn't do you any harm. And the data does tend to suggest, certainly for respiratory infections, for chest infections, and likely also with COVID-19, based upon one pilot randomized trial done in Spain, it will reduce your risk of, uh, of severe illness from chest infections and likely COVID-19. So I'm with you on this. I think, you know, I've changed my view a little bit. The ideal scenario is to get, you know, vitamin D from, from sunlight because actually it, it actually stays in your bloodstream longer. But it certainly, at least through the winter months, you should be taking a supplement. And, and I think the good thing about that is it's cheap. As you say, it's very straightforward. It's very easy. And you don't need to go for an expensive blood test. Certainly in the UK, it's quite expensive to get a test for vitamin D. And we're now thinking, actually, it's just better to advise. In fact, our Public Health England, our, um, you know, our uh, National Health Service, whatever guideline bodies have now come out and said, actually, pretty much everybody during the winter months should be on a vitamin D supplement. So... Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really important. Yeah, there's no question. The cost of the supplementation is actually far less expensive than the cost of the test. So uh, exactly. that's a no-brainer. But that interesting, that Southeast Asia study that you quoted um, is even more impressive. Is rather than a tenfold change in the death rate, they 96% uh, of the people who were infected with COVID who had severe or critical illness, 96 96% had low vitamin D levels. And on the converse, 96% of those who had mild COVID-19 had normal vitamin D levels, which makes it even more extraordinary and, and almost beyond rocket science. To and Joseph, Indonesia is not a country. It's not, a, it's not like, a, you know, it's not a, a northern latitude country. It's, it's, some, it's a country you'd think that they get plenty of exposure to. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Subtropics. You know, and some of it's cultural, time. of course, you know, uh, Muslims as well, in particular, females, they cover their body, et cetera, for a long period of time. But I think there are probably ways around it. But I think, yeah, we need to just think a little bit more about, um, about getting more exposure to sun, essentially. And, and, yeah, and I think what's interesting is when you look at this mixed data on supplementation for vitamin D, uh, with a lot of benefits, um, you know, one thing that I, which is, I think hasn't been done, I was thinking about this today, is what would be useful to do, and they've done this randomized trials in the short term, looking at, you know, in children or in adults about vitamin D supplements and, uh, you know, how, how commonly they get the, the flu virus, for example. They should, try a, they should try a randomized control trial on exposure to sunlight. They could do it. They could do an exposure to sunlight and, and you know, and, and people who don't get the sunlight, sunlight exposure my intuitive guess is that the, the results would be even more, much more remarkable. They'd probably be stronger for whatever reason. You know, I don't think we were put on this earth. I, I, I know there's differences. The food has changed and the nutrients have changed in the food, et cetera. But I don't think, his, you know, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we didn't survive on supplements. We didn't really need, we don't really need supplements from an evolutionary perspective. I suspect, you know, getting um, good health actually is going to come from, from just eating real food and being out in nature and, and doing moderate exercise and reducing our stress and social connection. All of those things I think are the key to, to longevity and, and, and good quality of life. Yeah, unfortunately uh, the evolution of man is such that we migrated from the tropical and subtropical zones up to the more Northern or Southern latitudes. And as a result, it's becomes uh, physiologically impractical to get enough vitamin D or UVB exposure to generate the vitamin D. So that becomes an issue. Yeah. I think once you get above 22 degrees latitude, either North or South you, or, or above those, you have a, a challenge. So <clears throat> I want to get into some of the specific details and, and give people the information on how they can apply this knowledge. Now they're inspired and hopefully catalyzed to make a difference, not only for themselves, but their family members. 
what to do, how to become metabolically healthy. And you put a lot of attention to elimination or limitation of sugars in the book and kind of paint them as a villain. And I think they certainly need to be appropriated, but I want you to talk about that because I think there's, there's an even bigger villain that is not uh, addressed well in the book. And, I, and I'm not quite certain that you're aware of it too, but I like to go into that, but let's discuss the sugar first. Yeah, sure. I think um, one basic way, so let's, if we just start by defining metabolic health, I think in very simple terms, Joseph, it's a point at which for you, excess body fat starts to increase risk of you developing, you know, um, many health conditions. And metabolic health, uh, certainly as a cardiologist, because people may ask, hold on, why is a cardiologist talking about the immune system? Well, um, it, first and foremost, for me as a campaigner, as an activist, someone who trained initially as being a, an interventional cardiologist doing keel heart surgery, I started on this journey because I noticed over my, you know, up to that point, 10 years ago, you know, almost 10 year career, that there was more and more people coming in with chronic disease, more and more sickness, um, you know, heart disease, cardiovascular death rates had plateaued. They've now started to increase slightly. And um, for me, it was trying to investigate what was going on, you know, in the wider, what, what were the wider determinants that were going on that were leading to people getting into hospital in the first place? And how, what could we do about it? So, um, and, and, when, and when I looked into all the research and data and I published, as you know, we did an interview seven years ago, actually, which I think, you know, was very popular on your website um, about saturated fat, which I wrote about in the BMJ. And I think that really started the ball rolling because it was a, it got a lot of coverage around, you know, me as a cardiologist saying saturated fat is not the major issue in the development of heart disease. What else I wrote in that is that we should be focusing on, and this links to sugar, of course, metabolic syndrome, because two thirds, 66% of people admitted to hospital in the largest study on heart attack admissions in the United States, two thirds of those patients have metabolic syndrome, but 75% will have so-called normal cholesterol levels and, you know, LDL, so-called bad cholesterol, which isn't really that bad, but we can come on to that in a little while. Um, you know, so metabolic syndrome was always a major issue from a heart disease perspective, but actually what is it, what else has emerged over the last few years is that poor metabolic health is at the root of many conditions, um, including, you know, obviously we know it's uh, type two diabetes, it's a precursor for that, high blood pressure, probably 50% of high blood pressure is related to poor metabolic health and likely also cancer and dementia as well. So these are really the big chronic disease conditions that you know, are the biggest contributors to, to healthcare costs and to misery, not just healthcare costs, just to misery for millions and millions of people. So the root of this, and you know, I'm always open to new data, new science, but it's quite clear that is the elephant in the room that we should be focusing on. And the reason we've not focused on it is because there's no real market for the message of healthy lifestyle. And because, you know, the, the drug industry, you know, as, as doctors, we treat individual conditions with individual drugs. So high, high blood pressure's got a pill. You've got a pill for type 2 diabetes. You've got a pill for cholesterol. And that's kind of been our focus. Yet these pills in most people don't have much of an effect at all in preventing any adverse outcome. And if you're unlucky to get side effects, then you're going to feel worse. So what should we be doing in terms of lifestyle? Well, well, actually, you know, the, the only data we have to show metabolic syndrome can be reversed is through lifestyle and actually just through dietary changes from small, albeit small studies, but it's pretty compelling. And, um, and that's really, for me, where all of this starts. Now, when you try and understand what, you know, what are the interventions that can improve metabolic syndrome, it's basically, you know, cutting out foods that are going to be increase the, you know, the biological root of this is what we call insulin resistance. So over time, our body becomes resistant to the hormone insulin, which has many functions, including being the fat storing hormone. So what we're doing, what we, the way we're implementing and the science behind it is, is really quite straightforward in the sense we want to minimize or reduce high glycemic index carbohydrates. So these are your refined carbs, these are your breads, your pastas, your white rice, for example, and sugar, which even has an in, in, indirect effect on promoting insulin resistance through um, increasing liver fat. So sugar is probably one of the major dietary culprits. It's certainly also beyond its calorie issue. Um, it seems to have an independent effect, an adverse effect on, on um, metabolic health. Uh, and it's something that you find in probably more than 70% of the foods in the, in the grocery store. 
or what we use the word we use in the UK to we call the supermarket. Um, and the food, and, and there is data to suggest that it in some ways works um, to affect hormones that control appetite. So what I would say in very simple terms, I tell my I'll tell my patients, is see sugar really is an appetite stimulant. It gives you no nutritional value. It has no nutritional value. It's not doing any good for you other than the instant pleasure or that you know you get from it. And of course, the food industry have exploited that. You know when it hits your palate and the the dopamine response and the high that people get momentarily from these sorts of foods. But other than that, it's going to, over time, going to cause you dam damage to your health. So sugar is one of the first things I always talk about that people need to eliminate if they can from their diet. And, uh, you know, fine, have the occasional treat. But once you've, you, you know, readjusted your palate and you've broken that so-called addiction, you don't crave it anymore. And those addictions, you know, for a lot of foods, for a lot of people, most people, you can break those addictions usually within three to six weeks. Um, and then it's the it's it's a low quality or the high glycemic index carbohydrates. So carbohydrates are lack fiber. So this isn't whole fruit and vegetables. Um, you know, this is the stuff we've already mentioned. Um, you know, the the breads, the pastas, the rice, for example. And um, and and in the United States, just to give you some perspective, Joseph, you know, 42% of all the calories consumed uh, amongst the average American comes from a low quality carb. So that's sugar. And the, the carbohydrates are like fiber. That's a huge amount of calorie consumption just coming from foods that really have little to no nutritional value and are going to basically send your glucose and your insulin through the roof. And chronic high insulin actually can precede the development of type 2 diabetes by even 24 years. And again, high, chronically high insulin is linked to many, many chronic diseases. So I think our focus with the data we have at the moment should shift to everybody understanding insulin and glucose and trying to minimize, you know, the excesses of both those, you know, both insulin and glucose through diet, but also what, what else is interesting is being sedentary is a problem. So moderate activity can ameliorate or, you know, uh, can reduce these, uh, uh, these risk markers, um, getting a good sleep and reducing stress. So I think combining all those together, that synergy of the diet and, and all the other lifestyle factors, um, certainly with my patients and that prescription, you know, has quite profound and rapid effects on health. So that's where we need to change the narrative. But we're up against big pharma, bad pharma, and we're up against the food industry. So this is really the challenge that we have. Um, but I think once more and more people become aware of the truth, then I think things will change because people will find it unacceptable. They'll find the, the status quo unacceptable. And, uh, and, and I think we all want, you know, our communities, our families, our friends to be as healthy and as happy for as long as possible. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, the, the information you shared is certainly what's accepted by those of us who advocate strong nutritional principles. And I don't think there's much of a disagreement with that. But I think there's another variable that has been overlooked, but not only you, but many other people like Robert Lustig, who you quote in your book, who's, I think, guilty of this. And I, 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 let me give you some preface for this and that I interviewed a ophthalmologist, Dr. Chris Kenobe, K-N-O-B-E, and he did some really fascinating investigative work. He's an ophthalmologist, and so he focused on age-related macular degeneration, which essentially did not exist, was not in, in the world population prior to 1900, didn't exist. Just as heart disease didn't exist, just as cancer essentially didn't exist. I mean, there were rare reported cases, but they were truly rare indeed. So what happened around 1900, it was the introduction of food processing. And the, the, it, what seems to be the biggest variable inclusion he reached, and I would tend to agree with it, is that it was really the processing of industri industrial processing of of vegetable oils or seed, more accurately, seed oils like canola, corn, soy. Uh, and in many of those cases, they're all genetically engineered. But it's that when you take these out of the plant and put them in high concentrations, you get enormous levels of omega-6, specifically alpha-linolenic acid. And, and it, the answer to that isn't taking more fish oil. It's actually to reduce it. I mean, our concentration of of this omega-6 fatty acid used to be well below 2% of, of the, of the, of the uh, energy in our diet. And we do need some, it's an essential fat, but we're getting at 10, 20 times more high, higher levels, which actually increases insulin resistance by causing 
the, interestingly, the adipocytes, the fat cells who become insulin sensitive uh, and not allowing them to perform their function and literally contributing radically to this whole panoply of meta metabolic ill health that you described. Yeah, Joseph. So, and it's, um, and it's not the and it's not the saturated fat. I forgot to mention it. So it yeah. is fat, but it's not saturated, as you rightly yeah. pointed out in your British Medical Journal editorial. Yeah. Somewhere. No, uh, Joseph, I agree uh, to some extent. So, I mean, interestingly, I wrote exactly what you said. I wrote about that in my first book, The Piopi Diet, which I published in 2017, and um, I did actually emphasize there's quite a, a sort of significant section about the harms of the so-called seed oils. Um, and, and what's very clear, absolutely, is that, the, and, uh, and separate to the omega-6, which you're absolutely, you're spot on about, um, Artemis Simopoulou uh, yeah. is a geneticist in, 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 based in Washington. And she's done a lot of great work showing that you're right, that, you know, if you go back, um, you know, pre-1900 or whatever else, you know, you're, the ideal ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 in the blood should be ideally 3 to 1. It should certainly be less than 10 to 1. And in the average sort of U.S. adult, I think this figures are pretty extraordinarily high. They're 25 ratio of 25 omega-6 fatty acids in the blood to one of omega-3. So omega, cutting omega-6 fatty acids or reducing it certainly is, is very important. Um, but, uh, but before I talk about uh, what you've you know, mentioned about all of the issues of insulin resistance, of course, there are a lot of biological studies that are very plausible, that, uh, that are valid, that, you know, completely that, that confirm what you said. Um, Certainly, heating these oils are, are very damaging. Oh. So, when you these these oils become very toxic with for common frying purposes, um, and they produce these aldehydes, which are these compounds that even the World Health Organization, you know, uh, say are, are carcinogenic. And even, for example, you know, we have a, a popular dish in the UK, fish and chips, um, <laughs> as you probably know. And just one portion, they did a study, one portion of fish and chips, you know, they uh, the the oil that's being, you know, these sort of vegetable seed oils, whatever that are being used. That the the aldehyde um, amount of aldehydes that are produced are like 200 times the limit recommended by the WHO. So there's a problem certainly there, 100%. The only thing that where my my thinking has evolved a little bit, and I defer to an expert in this field, um, uh, is uh, is a, a nutrition scientist in America you may you may know called Darius Mozafarian. Hmm. Now, if you look at the data observational data and some RCTs, and it is a bit mixed. You do find some studies of harm, and you, interestingly, overall, in his perspective, um, certainly when it comes to cardiovascular disease, there seems to be a slight potential benefit. So the question then is, it, are they as harmful, you know, in, uh, in smaller amounts, um, and, and if you're not cooking in these oils, for example? So personally, you know, I, I avoid them. I, I tell my patients to avoid them. And I actually say that, you know, based on the best data we have so far, my preference or certainly the base fat should ideally be good quality extra virgin olive oil, which is relatively stable for cooking purposes. And we have lots of biological data and some randomized control trial data showing that it's beneficial, certainly when it comes to heart disease, improves a good cholesterol HDL function, has anti-inflammatory benefits. So for me personally, what I do, you know, I follow my own advice, my base fat is extra virgin olive oil. And then I will use, you know, on top of that, I will use a bit of coconut oil from frying my eggs, for example, um, or, you know, certain, some of my Indian dishes I cook and I use ghee or butter. So these are the main oils. But yeah, absolutely, I avoid those polyunsaturates. And, you know, we do need some omega-6, as you say, and you can get those from nuts and seeds, actually. You can get plenty of those from nuts and seeds, which themselves are very good. You know, you'll get some omega-6s in almonds or whatever. So uh, I think, yeah, you're right. It's the dose that's the problem. And if people, the, the, the huge vast quantities around the world, this very cheap industrial seed oils, I think are a major, major, major issue. And we should try and shift away from those. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, I'm glad you're in agreement with that. The, uh, and that you had, you just, you didn't really touch on it in this book, right? Didn't read your last book. So I wasn't aware of that. Um, so the issue that you can really summarize and avoid most of it, but not all of it is avoid processed foods, which are loaded in sugar and these industrially processed seed oils. So, but you would get avoid most of them, not all of them. Uh, and uh, I certainly take olive oil myself. I limit it to about a tablespoon a day because it's significantly high in omega-6 too. So if you're having four or five tablespoons a day of, of uh, olive oil, you've got a pretty high level of omega-6. I mean, you just, just put into a nutrient analyzer, a chronometer, you'll see real quickly. Because I, I made that mistake for once. Where is all this omega-6 coming from? It's coming from my olive oil. 
So, and but the other ostensibly healthy sources of food that you and I would, and most people would agree on, would be healthy, healthy raised meat like poultry and, and pork. Well, these are uh, not ruminant animals. And as a result, they're, they're typically given lots of grains in their diet. And they the grains cause the omega-6 in their tissue to go up quite high, yeah. two, two to three times higher than a grass-fed animal, uh, beef of bison or, or lamb, uh, but not too different in many ways than, than the conventionally raised uh, beef, which is also potentially high in omega-6. You know? so it's, but it's, the key is finding that level of low omega six, and if you and the, the you know it's basically healthy raised fat. So I I, I think th there's an incredible information out there in lowering obesity with high amounts of uh, fat saturated fat called stearic acid, which is high in these foods. I just would like grass fed beef and butter. So that that to me is like one of the healthiest fats you can get, especially if you're interested in optimizing your weight. Yeah, no, sure, and I think uh, I think you know I I was. For a lot of people, they need to walk before they can run, Joseph. And you mentioned <laughs> the processed food, right? So uh, I think the big issue on the population level, and even for many individuals, is, uh, is uh, ultra-processed food consumption. And people can look up. It's free online. There's an international classification called NOVA, N-O-V-A, which came out of Brazil. And uh, they actually categorize all the different types of food according to the degree of processing. Now, what's interesting is um, they've actually simplified it in a way, which is very helpful, certainly when I discuss it with patients, is... Uh, ultra processed basically is, you know, usually something industrially produced, but in very basic, simple terms, I, I tell my patients or, you know, people I speak to that if it comes out of a, if it's packaged food and has five or more ingredients, usually with additives and preservatives, and these are exactly what you mentioned before, they're high in, in these, these unhealthy oils, sugar, starch, avoid them. But this is now 60% of the calories being consumed in the US and over 50% of what's being consumed in the UK are these foods, Joseph. It's absolutely staggering. So, you know, one of the bits of advice to start with is, is I tell people, you know, the two things is from what they should cut out is ultra processed food and low quality carbs and at least go cold turkey for a few weeks. If, you know, you may reintroduce them or have them with occasional treats or whatever, but this should not be making up the bulk of your calorie consumption. And that is really where we need to start. And, and I think if they cut that out, then they will also automatically, re, you know, be reducing their, um, you know, their, their, their refined carbs, their sugar, the omega-6 oils, you know, all of those things are going to be, you know, uh, significantly reduced from their diet. And then, of course, yeah, then, then we're dealing with probably more marginal effects with all the other, you know, tweaks you can do. Um, but that's a, that's a great place for people to start. Good. And as a part of your 21-day immunity plan, you also, I'm glad to see this, has integrated the intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, which is really technically the more accurate way to describe it, where you're limiting your eating window to about ideally six to eight hours a day. Uh, and I think that's, you, you nailed the target right in the head. I've been studying this thing for many years, and that's the conclusion I reached. I thought initially a tighter eating window might've been more, been healthier but I think that becomes problematic the older you are. If you're young and really healthy, probably you can go to one meal a day, a nomad diet. But I think for most everyone, six to eight hours is probably the wisest strategy uh, because it's achievable. And, and, and once you're there, it, there's absolutely no amount of willpower or, self, or discipline that's required to because the, your hunger and your appetite just is normalized and there's not yeah. a desire to eat these foods. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I think the key uh, with this, Joseph, is people need to stick to it. It can take a few weeks, you know, build up gradually. Uh, maybe start with one day a week, two days, three days, etc., um, and then it becomes much easier to do. You know, my cousin who who lives in California. I mean, he'd struggled for most of his um, certainly childhood and early adulthood as being particularly overweight, and you know we. As it is in these you know big extended families, it you know people make fun of him a little bit, just in you know in an endearing way you know, as, as the fat kid. I know this sounds really, you know, whatever. It's um, not very politically correct to do that these days, and I'm not condoning it, but this is the kind of thing, you know, these things go on historically. Um, but on a positive note now, he's probably the slimmest and maybe the fittest member and, of, of the whole family because, um, you know, he changed his diet, but he is religious with his um, time-restricted eating. I mean, he does it every day, and he's doing, you know, and he's literally got a flat stomach. There's 
he's in optimal metabolic health and it's amazing. Um, but you know, he told me as well, it took, it took time for him to really see the massive benefits of it for that, in that from doing it for him it took about a year to get the real kind of, you know, the last bit of fat around his belly, et cetera, to get rid of that. So, you know, it depends where you want to get to from my perspective, Joseph. And I think I always tell my patients, you know, again, walk before you can run. And in the book, I say, do these things first, because doing a lot of things at the same time might be more challenging. So maybe you start with cutting the ultra processed food and then you build on the time restricted eating. I think one caveat to that, and I don't know what I'd be, uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on it, Joseph, is, you know, and this applies to exercise as well. So I've been somebody that has always been very active. You know, uh, I do weight training, I do cardio, et cetera. Um, But if you go low carb, and your time-restricted eating, and you're quite active, and this is a crucial point, and you're suffering from high levels of stress at that particular time, you're having poor sleep and your stress levels are high, it can actually do the opposite. You know, if you're fasting and you're very low carb and you're exercising and, and you're stressed, it can actually raise your cortisol enough to make the whole situation worse and you can crash. So if people out there have gone through this and thought, oh, that sounds like me, just either ease off on the exercise a little bit or really focus on the stress first. And then you'll find the other things easier. You know, one of the anecdotes I write about in the book on the stress, um, there's a book, uh, there's a chapter on stress, is one of the patients who came to see me who had a heart attack in his 50s. And this guy was a, you know, super successful executive in the tech industry. He, you know, he was millionaire. He was, but he was, you know, very high functional, traveling around the world, 200 flights a year, but he was smoking. He had a junk food diet. He had metabolic syndrome. Boom, he has a heart attack at, you know, Actually, he was in his, in his 40s, not, not 50. And um, for him, the biggest impact for him to change his life around was, you know, seeing a, a stress reduction expert, um, a specialist nurse who, who had, uh, who had um, expertise in stress reduction. And once he started meditating, you know, for him, everything changed. He was then, he then found it much easier to do all the lifestyle stuff which he adheres to. But for him, the root, the biggest issue was reducing his stress levels. So I think we should obviously not ignore that. And I think for some people who do all these lifestyle things and come and see me, the one thing they seem to find the most difficult to get on top of is reducing the stress. And you have to be proactive on it. I mean, I know every day, every morning when I wake up, Joseph, I meditate for at least 10 to 20 minutes. If I go for a workout, when I finish my workout, I'll try and meditate for a little while because I know that probably my stress hormones are a bit ramped up after working out. I think that is something that needs a lot more attention as well. Yeah, there's no question. <clears throat> the non-controversial, in my view, is that stress is a, has a very important role to play. And uh, just wanted to comment on your, uh, my impression of the value of lim- carb limitations. So if, you, if you're sedentary and you're eating the, the normal American diet, uh, you're clearly going to want to restrict your carbs under 50 grams a day for a pretty long while, at least until you optimize your metabolic health. But if you are in fact active and healthy and engage in regular activity, like walking five, six, seven miles a day and on top of that doing resistance training, you're gonna need about 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates. It may be once or twice a week you go down low, but you, you, you have to, you know, because you wanna deplete your glycogen stores, but periodically, but you gotta supply that fuel. And if you don't, your body's gonna make it. So you, put, you add additional metabolic stressors. So 100, 150 grams seems to be well for most people, but thankfully we've got the tools now, and you mentioned it earlier, to actually figure this out for ourselves individually and customize it because for $7, you can buy a glucose test testing kit and the, the actual test strips are like 25 cents. So you can measure what your blood sugar is, which is really something convenient, it doesn't require a doctor's order. And you can get the immediate feedback to see if your level of carbohydrate restriction is optimizing your blood blood sugar levels. And thankfully, well, actually, I, th- I guess in, in uh, the UK, they use millimoles. In the US, we use milligrams per deciliter. But thankfully, you know, we do not want a triple digit uh, blood sugar level in milligrams per deciliter. And, and I don't know what the equivalent is in millimoles per, per uh, liter, but I think it's probably about five or so, five or six. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, the so any yeah so i think carbs could, are really important and as you mentioned they need to be healthy carbs i'm i'm yes. my, one of my favorite is, is is healthy fruit not fruit juices fruit whole fruit uh even though it's fructose even lustig who is a a uh, a vociferous opponent of fructose fructophobe. yeah fructophobe <laughs> is uh 
you know, it's, it, it concedes that fruit is okay. And he, yeah. he contends that it's the fiber component. I know what it is, but it clearly is not harmful in the right amounts. So yes. it's a really healthy form of, of sugar. Absolutely. No Joseph, yeah. and I, you know, I personally, uh, I probably get a combination, you know, I, I, most days, at least seven to 10 portions of, of whole fruit and vegetables in my diet plan, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, ideally, they're you know, a bit more of low sugar fruits like berries, for example. Um, but I will have an apple or an orange or a pear. But yeah, the juice should be avoided. But yeah, I think that people don't realize that, you know, they're very it's small amounts of fructose in those fruits and your liver can deal with it. And you've got all the other nutrient antioxidants. You've got the fiber, all the other benefits you get from the whole foods and the whole fruit and vegetables, um, which basically means it's fine uh, for, for the majority of people. And even people with metabolic syndrome, you know, I think as long as they can stick to low sugar fruits, they'd be absolutely fine. Excellent. So we, we've run over a lot of the highlights of your book and some of the basic principles. And I'm wondering if, if there's any other areas you, that I missed that you'd like to emphasize. Um, I think the only one thing, uh, Joseph, which again, you know, and it, it kind of struck me a little bit when we were hearing these tales. And of course, you know, that the absolute risk is still very small for a younger, healthy population. But there were certain stories coming out, for example, from New York of a young, you know, adult so-called fit runner you know, who was running, you know, whatever, 10, 20 miles a day or something like that, and he got very sick and he died from COVID, is um, there is quite compelling evidence that too much exercise actually has a, a negative effect on the immune system. And certainly if you look at people who do certainly more than an hour of cardio a day, you know, historically with, with influenza, they're four times more likely than people who even, you know, than, uh, than people who do moderate activity of, of getting uh, chest infections, for example. So I think people should also think a little bit about that. Some of the patients I see, again, are overdoing on the exercise. When it comes to heart disease, moderation is key, is best. There is no real extra dose response relationship in terms of developing heart disease and certainly none with longevity. So I think just people need to be a little bit aware of that, you know, doing too much actually can have a negative effect. You're more likely to pick up uh, respiratory infections and it might affect you more severely and you know, I write a little anecdote about, you know, a couple of the worst illnesses I've ever had um, when it comes to flu in my life have happened when I've been over overtraining. Yeah, or, you know, not sleeping well. So another form of stress. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, the reason why exercise works, because it, it definitely actually pushes you back temporarily. You're digging yourself a hole in a ditch. It, the reason why exercise works is that it, 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 you actually get better in the recovery. And if you're not giving your body the opportunity to recover, you're not going to get better. You're only going to get worse. So rather than engaging in the exercise, and I've been exercise, exercising since, since the 60s. So that's a long time, over 50 years. And the, uh, the, the, the primary uh, strategy, that especially the, the guy who passed away from COVID, who was young and ostensibly healthy, would be instead of exercising in those days two or three times a week, he should have been in meditating like you. That would have caused him to yeah. improve his health, not the additional exercise. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's, you know, and but again, just to also emphasize that even that 10 minutes of exercise or moderate activity over time does seem to enhance uh, T cell function, which is involved in the innate immune response. So there is, you know, uh, an enhancement of immune system, you know, um, function from doing moderate activity as well. So I think that's obviously, you know, uh, an incentive to not be, this isn't telling people to stay sedentary, but it's just, just do a little bit, it goes a long way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just common sense stuff, as does vitamin D too. Definitely helps those T helper cells and optimize the cytokine production, so. All right, well, the book is the 21 Day Immunity Plan. It's a great quick read. It will help emphasize some of the basics that you need to understand and apply. And I think you get some benefit from it. So. Good book, pick it up.